All right, hello everyone. I'm back again with Dr. Sean McFate. In the last episode, we discussed what Putin's next move um, might or will be. In this episode, we're going to discuss what NATO can do next uh, in order to at least contain the situation. And there are a number of things. It's, there's no, not only one thing, there'll be a number of options. So given the dynamic of, of what's going on in the ground, uh, Sean, you had a recent uh, article in The Hill that discussed at least a preliminary salvo at, at what can be done. I definitely have my own opinions, but I'll, I'll save that for, for after you kind of have a kind of lay out sure. where, what the options might be. Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, as time goes on, the sanctions will take their bite. And the sanctions are quite clever. And they're aimed at also the elite, not just the masses. Although we have to remember that sanctions are very blunt instruments. There's a saying, I used to live in Africa and, and uh, do uh, military work though, shall we say. There's a saying in Africa I learned that when, they, when the elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. And the grass, of course, is the people. So, you know, that's, we'll see that. Um, um, but, you know, let's not forget that, you know, a lot of European countries and economies are very much invested in Europe, like Germany, Austria, France, Italy, Cyprus. And sanctions are a two-way street. So as the sanctions starve Russia, there will also be a, a knock-on effect of starving those countries too, which could could really erode political resolve of those NATO countries to stick with the sanctions regime. So the sanctions is, it's not a one-shot deal. You got to kind of monitor it. Um, the second thing is that, you know, President Biden has made it very clear and, and wisely, in my opinion, that we don't want American soldiers or troops on the ground in Ukraine. Because if it's a, a Russian versus American firefight, it can really escalate to a nuclear war. And that might sound preposterous to your listeners, but if there's any single law of warfare, it's the law of unintended consequences. And if you can think about like what happened in Serbia in 1914, the, the assassination of you know, Archduke Ferdinand leading to World War I, that can happen within one hour because of nuclear, you know, nuclear missiles. So I think Biden wants to keep Americans off the ground. So the real question is, what can NATO and the U.S. do to get Russia out without putting troops on the ground? And we've already done, you know, historic sanctions. So I think that is the question before us, Sean. So what? What sorts of scenarios does the U.S. you know can they play? If one is you know obviously something that's that that avoids helping the Ukrainians at all costs. So no, you know, not saying no to a no-fly zone, um, not sending uh, troops in, or or not sending proxy troops in. Right? right. That could be that could be one extreme, and then they just you know kind of go with the economic sanctions and and just try to leave the Russians dry that way. Then there's, you know, something that's a little in kind of the new rules for war, which mm -hmm. is not looking at it as a war, but looking at it as, you know, war, you know, politics and war, peace and war at the same time. That's right. Yeah. Right. Um, there are a number of options that, that 
the U.S. may have that way? What what in your mind are those options? So, you know, again, I wrote this book called The New Rules of War in 2019, and it's actually being read right now in, in Kiev. I know because I have Russian colonels asking me questions about certain rules. Um, so here's what I would advise. You mean, you mean Ukrainian I, colonels? You mean Ukrainian colonels? Ukrainian colonels are asking, yeah, they're okay. in contact with me. Yeah, I have gone to, you know. Um, I also teach at the uh, National Defense University uh, in Washington, D.C., where we have, you know, over the years, multiple uh, Ukrainian uh, colonel, colonels and general officers. Um, so here's how what I would do. I mean, if and this is a little different. I mean, first of all, um, look, you win by being sneaky, not by being strong alone. It's, you know, David can beat Goliath. And it's not that you know strength's important, but I think cunning goes further, especially in the 21st century in the information age. Um, and we've seen how Russia has become a disinformation superpower. So the things that I'm thinking about and I'm proposing in my writings and my, my talk is that we should be sneaky. We, we used to be sneaky in the Cold War. Sean, given the current conditions on the ground, what would you recommend that the U.S. and NATO do? Well, I recommend that we get sneaky. Uh, I think it's sneaky wins wars today and not just brute strength. And so what does this mean? Well, first of all, we have we have a surprise resistance on the ground. Let's keep it alive. But we can't use U.S. soldiers, even covertly in Ukraine, because the risk of World War III is too high. So what we should do is we should we should base them on the borders of Romania or Hungary. Right. So special forces, Green Berets, this is what they do for a living. They were started in the, in the 1950s and 60s to create guerrilla movements against Russian. You know, that's what and they're based in Fort Bragg. Let's put them out there. The CIA does this, too. But the CIA, let's face it, they're all ex-Green Berets and SEALs anyway. So let's just give the mission to um, special forces and special operations forces. They can create uh, like an insurgent base uh, right across the border from Ukraine in Hungary or Poland or Romania. Insurgent groups can, or even just immigrants and refugees can go there. We can even link it with a refugee camp. Um, and, and, you know, people who want to volunteer for the resistance can get training, equipping, intelligence, safe haven there. And when they're ready and we form, you know, viable guerrilla units, they infiltrate back across and they start to build Western enclaves, just like the, the Russians built Eastern enclaves in the Debas uh, of Russian sphere. We'll do the same for the, uh, for the West of, of Ukraine. But we shouldn't just limit it at that. And of course, we should arm them with stingers and javelin and tank missiles. And you know, all they got to do, they don't have to destroy the Russian military. They just got to survive. So one of the oldest tricks in military strategy is you can win by not losing, right? I mean, think about General Washington in the American Revolutionary War. As long as his army was in the field, it was winning. It was a useless, terrible, scrappy little army that was half starved, undersupplied, you know, diseased. But as long as George Washington and the Continental Army were still in the at play, 
London could never say they had won. And that's what Washington did. So that's what, you know, Zelensky or whoever you know, needs to do is if, if the resistance is alive, it is still, you know, you've denied a victory condition to Russia. And for those who haven't seen it, you need to see one of my favorite movies is, um, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting it. It's, uh, you know what, Wolverines, that 1980s movie I'm thinking about? Red Dawn. Uh, yeah, Red Dawn. I can't believe I spaced it. Not Red Dawn 2, which is a travesty. Red Dawn, about the great American insurgency against the Soviet invasion of the United States of America. Like shot in like 1985 or something. I don't know when it was. But like, yeah, and they, you can and they, win... Yeah, yeah. And they I also mean, have the, the, the VDV, the VDV colonel. And, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So insurgencies win by not losing. And what they try to do is they try to protract the fight. They try to elongate it because as the longer it goes on, the more a fool Putin looks like. And that creates opportunities. It creates opportunities for us to approach Xi Jinping of China and say, you really don't want to be in business with this loser over here, right? We can work a wedge strategy because if we can separate China from Russia, that's a major win for the West. But we should also get more devious than that. So, you know, we are the country that invented Hollywood Madison Avenue, Twitter, all Facebook, all these things. Why are we being outcommunicated by clumsy autocracies? Let's let's ourselves dabble in the dark arts of, of we don't even have disinformation. We can just have information. So if there's a way, for example, we could provide you know pirate VPNs to people in Russia. So they can Google whatever they want and let the truth do its work. That might be a, that would erode Putin's supply. I mean, uh, his, his power base. Assimilarly, if you have, you know, Russians hate seeing Russian soldiers coming home in body bags. That goes back to the Afghan war in the 1980s. If, if the insurgency can send, you know, frankly, kill Russian soldiers and document it, which they've already begun doing, and make that known within Russia, you can get Russians asking Putin, like, is this really worth it? And we all know that Putin's not a democratically elected, you know, dictator, he's a dictator, but he's still somewhat sensitive. I mean, in the 1980s, mothers of dead or missing Russian soldiers from Afghanistan created the first major anti-war protest in the USSR, and that really socked it to the Kremlin. Putin remembers that. We need to resurrect that. And then we should also just do fun things. Like, I mean, Putin runs around half naked on a bear. Can't we do something with that? I mean, he he, he uses a hand glider to help glide like, I guess, swans to their nesting migration things. Let's ridicule that. I mean, we all know that dictators have miniature, they have sort of miniature egos. Uh, and then lastly, and this is like, there's other things, like he hates color revolutions, like the orange revolution. Let's start a few. Russia is an empire with, you know, hundreds of years of animosity on its border from other republics. Let's prop them up, you know, and then lastly, let's use covert means to, you know, autocracies are very brittle. I thought they concentrate all their power at the top. And, you know, at the top of that is, 
is a Putin autocrat who's actually kind of nervous about his life expectancy because most autocrats have a violent death. They don't retire in peace, you know? So can we not create the illusion that some of his lieutenants want to stage like a palace coup d'etat so that he takes out his lieutenants for us? There's many ways to, to play this where some of the best weapons don't fire bullets. We have the capability, but we don't have the political will. And we need, because we don't take it very seriously. And it's, it's the problem. It's the boiling the frogs you know, problem. We need to take it more seriously. We need to get more sneaky like we were during the Cold War. And I think these things, whether it's a wedge strategy, China, Russia, manipulating uh, you know, Putin's frame of mind, supporting the resistance, you know, uh, sanctions, all these in combination. This is what wins, not in a battlefield victory. It wins like, you know, the Berlin Wall falling down one day in 1989 and a lot of the world being shocked. That's how you win modern war. So let's let's go a little bit on the tactical level along with that, that theme. And I, I don't even know if I should be saying this stuff out loud, but um, I have a pretty devious mind. So there are three categories of things that Ukrainians can can do. And in terms of, on, you know, in, in terms of given when you're facing a an overmatch in terms of conventional power, some of the tactics, techniques, and procedures that, that, that you can do. There's, and these three categories are as follows. Number one, traditional sort of acts of sabotage. And I'll go through some examples. Number two, unconventional ways to um, you know, use, use the Russians' own strengths against them. And then number three, these are the, if you want Western support, you should not do under any means, but were surprisingly effective in, in other, other conflicts. So in the first category, these things are more traditional and you're, you're seeing Ukrainians already doing some of these things. So, you know, denying access to bridges by destroying bridges as the Russians come on. So these kind of scorched earth sort of tactics. Um, the, other, the other thing is there's more elaborate ways to do that, to deny tanks access to certain areas. So there's a technique called, uh, you know, making an abatee uh, sort of defense. And what that involves is if you see that big long line of tanks, there's trees on either side of the road, right? So if you, if you attach uh, an explosive C4, whatever explosive you have, about a third of the way up those trees, they're going to collapse downward and you have a nice crisscross that is impassable by tanks. Okay. So that's another mm -hmm. thing you can do. There's also deception turrets and vehicles. So let's say you have two columns of Russian tanks advancing in parallel. You could put a deception turret in between and have them start to shoot at each other. Okay. Um, there are obviously the normal tank traps and, and, and things like that uh, that you can put in the way, which the Ukrainians are already doing, um, similar to the Caltrops, right? So there's, you know, just like steel kind of cross items you'd see on D-Day, right, as an example. And then you also have tank ditches, um, barbed wire, anything like that. So that's kind of, those are all, and then there's road cratering as well that you can do with explosives. There's a number of things like that that you can um, employ that are traditional and will slow down the Russian advance. Then there's more uh, untraditional methods that, you know, who knows? So 
Um, this, this may be a little bit insensitive, but you'll, you'll understand where I'm coming from when I explain it. There's, there's kind of the Bobby Yar honeypot strategy, right? And Ukrainian, every Ukrainians will understand what Bobby Yar is. But what the, what the Germans did when they were rounding up the Jewish population is they went around and said, if you want to go to Israel, show up to this spot. And we'll take you home to we'll take you we'll take you back to Israel and you can establish Zion, et cetera. And every every Jew who showed up got shot. So using that idea, you could use Tinder, have hot Ukrainian women, you know, show themselves on Tinder, and then you just lure a bunch of Russian soldiers and you capture them. I'm not saying you kill them, but you capture them. You can even shame them, take their pictures, send them back to their mothers. Show them, hey, this person, you know, that your son was visiting a whorehouse and, you know, and, and you know, taking advantage of the locals, et cetera. So that's, you know, one, one thing you can do. The other thing that you can do is you, um, you find a location that you know has Russian equipment and weapons and you leak it to the press that that's where the Ukrainians are storing javelins. Then you have the Russians destroy their own equipment. So there are a number of things that you can do like that, and that's probably a little bit borderline, but there are a number of things like that that you can do to subvert the, the narrative and, 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 and to fight. Now, the next series of things are the do not do at all, because the level of Russian response will be merciless. The Chechens did a number of these things, okay, in the first, particularly in the first Chechen war. So in the first Chechen war, snipers would aim at, at the groin because it would be humiliating, disfiguring, and a slow and painful death. Do not do that. The second thing they would do is they would get Russian dead and wounded and hang them upside down from the windows in any buildings that they occupied so that the Russian troops would have to shoot their own to hit the Chechens. The third thing they did was at night, under the cover of darkness, they would take the heads of Russian soldiers and put them on stakes outside the, the entrance to the city so that new Russian conscripts would see this sort of thing every time they walked in. So these are wartime atrocities. They're against the Geneva Convention. You do not do that. If you do that, you will lose Western support. Uh, but the Chechens did that, and that's kind of one reason they had their won their brutality. The other thing that you can do, and again, you will lose Western support, is what the Chechens did subsequent to the 1999 uh, leveling of Grozny, which is terrorism. Right? There's the there's the theater in Moscow. There's the Beslan incident. Um, you know, not good. You don't you don't want to be doing that sort of thing. So. That said, there's plenty of opportunity for the, the middle ground, which is these, these unconventional tactics that use the Russian overmatch against themselves. Oh, the other thing, and the Ukrainians are already doing this. Um, they're you know, changing road signs and you know, causing mass confusion and things like that. You could do that to devastating effect if yeah. you can have two Russian forces converge toward each other and put like a Ukrainian tank and just abandon it and let it sit there and you could start a firefight. Uh, the Chechens actually did things like that. That that's mm -hmm. as long as you're not the one, you know, causing that fight. That's totally fair game. 
Well, you know, rearranging road signs is something that the Russian Cossacks did against the Napoleonic invasion in 1812 as well. I mean, so that's the irony is thing. But you're right. There's there's these go, there's these these two extremes, and they're both non-viable to win modern war. One is that you you play like angels, mm-hmm. um, and that doesn't work. Now you can do like counter mobility and stuff like that. You're talking about against tanks. Yes, that's true at the tactical level. But with the play like angels to me is like the sort of the um, the academics and lawyers in Geneva who are imagining war, but they've never smelled gun smoke. And, you know, they, these are not the people who should be laying down the quote laws of war. Right. I mean, it should be warriors who are doing this. And then that's kind of why nobody pays attention to laws of war anymore, except for the U S and the West. Um, And then there's the other extreme, which is, um, you know, that they lose all credibility by, by out, disgusting the russian disgusting and you know if ukraine wants to survive as an insurgency they need to keep this narrative of david versus goliath that's what they have to do because again one of my rules the new rules award like is that some of the best weapons don't fire bullets and one of them is is the narrative of war the narrative of why you're fighting the narrative of what does victory look like and this is how you know the weak defeat the strong, whether it's, you know, George Washington against the, the Redcoats or it's, you know, uh, you know, pick, pick your battle, like where, where the little guy wins. Uh, sometimes they do it by creating this narrative of they're, they're just the, the underdog. And, um, and all they got to do to win is, is not die. And so it's like when a little league team plays in New York Yankees, all they've got to do is just not go, you know, lose immediately. Uh, or lose by a huge amount, you know, a little bit of fight can go a long way. So, um, but there is this middle ground. And I think one of the questions that you're raising really, and this is my, my work is really about the middle ground. How do you win in the middle ground? And I, again, it, you know, we need devious strategists, not, you know, just, you know, it, it look, if, if firearms were all it took to win wars, then we should have easily won against Al Qaeda and the Taliban. We had more bullets, so what's the problem? It's not just, it's, it's a lot of other things too. So we need cunning strategists. And I believe that some of our, you know, I believe in the Ratatouille rule. Like, so, you know, the, the movie Ratatouille, like Disney, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the rat in Paris. So in this movie, it's about being a chef, right? Like a Parisian chef. And there's this rule that not everybody can be a great strategist, but a great strategist can come from anywhere. And right now within the military bureaucracy and the political chum slick of Washington DC, which favors, you know, it's, it's like, you know, fifth grade, um, you know, clubs or whatever, clicks. Yeah, backstabbing. You know, that's that's that environment is not going to produce strategic thinkers. We need to be open-minded. Like, I used to love this book when I was a kid called Ender's Game. Um, that was made into a movie. It's by Orson Scott Card. Yeah. So, so for the for, yeah. for people who are listening to this, I have a story yeah. that's going to appear in an anthology yeah. with Orson Scott Card. Um, it's called hmm. World's World's Long Lost. Um, it's am- Orson Scott Card's an amazing writer. I mean. Amazing, right? So he wrote this book in the 80s called Ender's Game, which is about how do they, like, how does a society 
spot and identify and and train a strategist from a young age. And I don't know how to do that, but that's what we need. Um, and I think one of the things we're going to have to really seriously rethink is the laws of armed conflict, the laws of war. So the current laws of war, like the Geneva Conventions, the Hague Conventions and the protocols, they're all meant to, they came out of the 19th century and they're all meant to regulate conventional war, which is state-on-state war using militaries and sort of codes of honor. That type of warfare hasn't existed for 70 years, yet we still constrain ourselves by it. So there's a there's a you know there's an old saying in law, like you either bend law to fit reality, or you bend law, or, or you bend reality to fit the law. And I think we can't bend reality to fit the law. So we have to update the laws of armed conflict so they reflect modern warfare. You know, they reflect war and information age. They reflect all these things we've seen since 1945. Meanwhile, we're stuck like, you know, a mosquito locked in Jurassic amber about what, you know, what war should be. So, um, you know, and, and the, one of the reasons we're stuck in this laws of war paradox is because the people who are in charge are not the people who have to fight. And so you have moral hazard in the, in the lawmaking here. And until we correct that, we will never do well. And the West, that's a Western problem because, you know, Russia, China, Iran, terrorists, they've all blown by this. Right. They've all like, they've all moved past us. Well, even, we even, like even, the, yeah. even the, like the Russians and the Ukrainians are taking pictures of prisoners and like, they're not yeah. supposed to be doing that according to the law, like no. the convention. The Geneva Convention is as, you know, up to date as like a horse-drawn carriage, right? I mean, so we need to like stop being paradigm prisoners of that. And the first question people ask, is it legal? My answer is, is it strategic? Let's not relegate strategy to lawyers and not just any lawyers, but like these soft law lawyers, the human rights crowd, the, the laws of armed conflict crowd. These are not people who have any skin in the game. You know, if you want to, if you want to use the laws of armed conflict to mitigate human suffering, then let's update it. It's about 120 years behind the times. And this, you know, and we have to be more, you know, that, that goes hand in hand. We have to be more devious, frankly. All right. There's one, one last place or two last places I want to go, but we're going to wrap up pretty soon. Um, what is, aside from doubling down, what is the face-saving exit for Vladimir Putin? Yeah. So this is a great question is that um, this is what Scipio Africanus would call the golden bridge. So Scipio Africanus was a great Roman general Punic Wars, in the right? second Punic War, second Punic Wars mm-hmm. against Hannibal. And, you know, he was greater than Napoleon, in my opinion. I mean, we just we, we forget because it was a long time ago, but um, he always said, provide your enemy with a golden bridge to retreat. But you would manipulate that. You'd be, you'd create like a situation where like, you know, if you can imagine like rats in a maze, you create the off ramp to go exactly where you want to go, but they, they make the choices and you, you kind of manipulate those choices. So how can we create a golden bridge for Putin to back down yet, you know, not press the nuclear red button? 
right? And I think that's a cunning strategist has to think about that today. And so the, the question is, what is he willing to live with, with Ukraine that is not like Georgia today, right? Uh, we would not, you know, could we enter Ukraine into the EU, but not NATO? Um, could we have, I mean, so like, that is one thing. I don't think that there's a scenario where, you know, he would say, okay, I will, I will leave, but it's going to be, you know, my puppet regime under my foreign policy, but they have autonomy within their territory to like regulate domestic law. You know, that might be something. I don't think he's going to go for that. I think um, what we are going to have to do is we have to protract this for four or five years until the point where his economy is savaged. Ukraine is clearly not going to go away, but it's a it's it's neither he's going to win nor they're going to win. And then we can bring Russia to the table and uh, Ukraine will have a voice. We can't tell Ukraine you can't join NATO. It's up to it's up to Ukraine and NATO for that. But I think this is going to take, like, we're, we, we're, we've just put Putin into a vat of acid. And we've got to let time go on until he's, like, in bad shape with, like, flesh and tendons dangling on the bones to, you know, entice him into the golden bridge of our choosing. And we have more strategic patience than he does, barring a presidential election. All right, last, last piece. Uh, given what's going on today, uh, you know, if it's if it extends long into the spring, um, well, I'll start a little bit. One one concern I have is kind of what are the what are the ripple effects, and the one that concerns me, I wouldn't say the most, but concerns me is while the while the EU will be fine with any disruption to agriculture because as we all know that ukraine used ukraine used to be the breadbasket of the soviet union uh i i'm concerned about the impact it will have particularly on the middle east and africa turkey as an example you know i don't have the exact numbers but i think but it's between anywhere between 60 and 90 percent of its uh grain or wheat one or the other, right? That they, that it imports comes from about two thirds of that comes from Russia, and another third comes from Ukraine. The Middle East also is very dependent on that supply from Ukraine. I think uh, Ukraine also produces half the the maize or corn in Europe. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's not a huge issue for Europeans, but. I'm worried that we're going to see another bout of instability in the Middle East um, and Africa as a result of this war. Fast forward about a year from now. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's correct. I think that, um, again, like I said, the, the only law of conflict is really the law of unintended consequences. And I think the ripple effects, well, A, there's going to be refugee effects in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And we know that drives up like neo-Nazi regimes in Eastern Europe. Yeah, it's already a million. Right? It's a million and counting yeah, right now. Yeah, and, and yeah. I think they but think we it's know that five, right? There is a lot of, um, you know, okay, the, the, in my opinion, there's some racism going on too. Like, mm 
Oh yeah. There's a, there's a, you know, there's a higher tolerance for white war refugees and other war refugees. Um, But, you know, refugees, drains on economies in Hungary, Poland, Romania, places like that, refugee camps. I mean, that is going to take a toll. Um, The economic drain for countries that are pretty invested in Russia, like, again, Germany, France, Italy, Austria, Cyprus, those you know, though that will impact that domestic political situation, and they will tell their political leaders, "Let's back off of the U.S.'s crazy horse stuff," mm-hmm. and you'll start to see maybe even a NATO alliance, you know, erode a little bit. And then there's food security issues in the Middle East, and the Middle East. You know, we all know that conflict and resource problems can spark you know wars and we've seen a lot of that in the past and i think um you know the middle east economies depending where you are are not that great there's a lot of places in, in the middle east which are pretty unstable there's still afghanistan which is um you know it doesn't they're get bread baskets they? yeah they're starving and that's a uh, places in the world like yemen libya afghanistan they're time bombs right and so um there's a lot of there's a lot of ways this whole thing can go sideways in the third and fourth order effects that if you if you if you move back from the current Ukrainian flag waving of the moment um, could have some dire consequences and we need to think through these strategies and also frankly could stuff like this be you know fodder for the US midterms in 2022 um, and so there's there's a lot going on. And also, what might Xi Jinping do? I mean, that's a big independent variable. You know, can we drive a wedge between Xi Jinping and Russia? Uh, could that backfire? You know, people are talking about Taiwan and stuff like that. With, but, you know, let's also remember that China is very busy digesting Hong Kong still. And there's a lot of saber rattling going on. But that could all go sideways as well. So, you know, it's a fraught, it's fraught times, um, you know, if, if we focus on worst case scenarios, but I think the things that you're talking about, like food security and refugee issues, I think those are very real and should be expected. Now, there is one offset to countries in the Middle East that have high, you know, have incomes that are principally derivative of uh, the oil industry, right? So the higher price of oil will be somewhat of an offset. But for those countries that are kind of in the middle that don't really have a burgeoning oil industry, uh, there could be there could be some issues. The other thing, and I haven't considered, I haven't looked at the numbers. I'd be curious how much grain or wheat that the that the Chinese import from Ukraine. Sure, right? They'll be fine with Russia, yeah. but you know, will there be some sort of disruption? Because if there's one thing that kind of the the Chinese do not need. It is, you know, given they have much higher male to female ratios, uh, given the cultural longstanding mandate of heaven that, you know, they, you know, they only reign by virtue. Their biggest threat is in, is their own internal instability, which is why Xi Jinping has always been focused on growing the economy, making sure people have jobs. That goes away and he has a massive internal problem. Well, also remember, like Belt Road Initiative kind of goes through a lot of these places. 
Um, and we, there's a lot of uh, hyperbole around China's strength, but I think it's actually quite, quite brittle, as you mm -hmm. mentioned. Um, and also, let's not forget that you know, China and Russia have a thousand years of animosity and enmity between each other, and they both look down each other. They, they view the only rival they have is the United States of America, and that each other is a secondary rival. And so we'll see how this real politic you know, deal between Putin and Xi plays out over time. Um, but I think you're correct. I mean, China, its strategic interest may not be fully aligned with Russia's. And, and it doesn't mean it's fully aligned with the US. Yeah. In the short term, it's great for China because it's sucking us and our resources into right. a war that, you know, not a war, but into a, in, into a conflict or potential conflict that we don't need or we don't have strong interests other than to protect an alliance on a piece of paper, right? And that's great for China because we, we, we take our, our, our eyes off that ball, that great trans-Pacific shift. So that's right. That's the short term, yeah. but the long term, good. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, I, I mean, China in. has strategic patience. I mean, one of the things about autocracy is they have strategic patience. And in China's case, their, their goal is to be the regional hegemon of Asia by 1 October 2049. So they that have between Taiwan, 2022, right? that includes everything in the Pacific. They want to move us out. We guess will be hegemon, but not of Asia. That's their domain. They they have their own Monroe Doctrine, and um, you know, long term, what Russia is doing really can get in the way of that. And they have strategic vision. So again, like you say, the short term, it's it's convenient, but they've. I think that in Beijing, they're a little worried about where this might lead, um, especially if you know, worst case scenario. Um, you know, Putin pops off a tactical nuke someplace, even on Russian territory to send the signal to the world. I mean, that's not good for the Chinese economy, whatever you look at it. So I'm not suggesting that there's going to be some grand alliance in the U.S. and China. There probably won't be. But again, the U.S. needs to find a wedge strategy to separate and create daylight between Russia and China, maybe not in the near term, but in the mid to long term. And if we could do that, I think we'd be well in a way to, you know, things will be stable. I mean, I don't want to be cautiously optimistic, as I say in DC. Well, but, three, um, three, three party, three party antagonist systems are inherently unstable by their very nature. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah, that's actually right. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, Sean, once again, thank you very much right. for your insight and your your um, review of, of what's going on. And hopefully we're both wrong, at least on the bad <laughs> stuff, and we're and we're right about yeah. the good stuff. But uh, we'll we'll you know we'll see what happens in the next coming weeks and days. So okay. I'll talk to you soon, let's, my friend. Let's let's reconvene and, and see who we are and whenever a good period is. But yeah, let's see if we've uh, Hopefully we're wrong, as you say, about some of these things, but I think hopefully we're right about some of these things too. So yeah, okay. take care. All right, my friend, talk to you soon. All right, take care. Mm -hmm.